Hi, I'm Anna McEwen, and this is The Epic Narrative. And now, my dad, Bob Switzer. I do, I, I, I love these phrases in scripture. You guys know this already. If you've listened to me at all, you know I, I just get, I get keyed in when I see a phrase like this. In uh, chapter 13, 2 Samuel, it says, in the course of time. That means time. It's just one of those phrases that means, a, you know, a year has passed. A year, a year of regular everyday stuff. A year in which Bathsheba is pregnant and probably has, you know, given birth. Uh, by the time that this story rolls on, you got you got the Ammonites have been defeated, and the headdress, a 75-pound backpack of gold and precious stones, you know, is now probably hanging in the throne room where everyone can see it because it's it's like a wonder of the world, uh, the, the 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 craftsmanship and the and the the wealth that it represented, and and you have David's household. You've got multiple children that are now you know in their twenties. They're married. They're having kids of their own. You got a few that are teenagers that are you know uh, taking their roles as princes in the kingdom, uh, doing their thing, whatever that means. You've got. You've got some continued dissension, I believe, uh, in uh, Ahithophel, the main counselor. He's he's holding, he's waiting for his moment. He's waiting for his moment. He knows, he knows eventually, he will be able to pay David back for what he did to Bathsheba, and for murdering Uriah. And these are things that David, uh, you know, I, I'm sure he's aware of. But I don't think he's aware of the dissension. I think in his mind, he's expecting. Uh, he's 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 got his. He, I think what he does is he has his minds uh, and antennas up for like like the the military violence. Like he's he's looking and has his uh, his filters out or his guards up, uh, looking for. Uh, extended family members or whatever that would be looking to kill him. And I'll tell you, I mean, I I think that that becomes more evident uh, as this chapter rolls on. Uh, You'll you'll see, I think, some uh, some nuances in in David's decisions that that show he's not he's not uh, a big fan of of going after family members, disciplining family members, because I think he knows that there's some rumblings that he needs to be careful of. Nothing that he can't handle, or so he thinks, but things he needs to be careful of. So David is uh, just doing life as a king. He's he's just walking out the years. Everything's going pretty good. David's probably running about uh, 50 years old at this point. Bathsheba is 22, 23, probably has a newborn named Solomon in her arms. Uh, 
And then we have, uh, oh, and David, sorry, in the course of time, I, they, these are some notes I'm just checking out. David's been king uh, in Jerusalem for about 20 years. So the nation is now in a pretty good rhythm of wealth and uh, prominence in the, amongst the other nations and, you know, in the area of trade and military uh, exploits. He, you know, they squash anybody who's, uh, who's really looking to take them on. They're able to, to be aware of any uh, outside influences that maybe are trying to push in the borders. David's expanding the kingdom. It's this is this is 20 years of really good stuff. So in the course of time, Amnon. Now I'll probably end up saying that Ammon most of the time, but I do know it's A M N O N. So it's Amnon. He's a son of David. He falls in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, who is the son of David. And you're like, wait, they're related? Yep. That was how they rolled back then. You kept the royal family in the family. And they would have shared probably a courtyard. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the children grew up with their mothers in apartments uh, in what we would call apartments. Uh, I don't know if they were multi-leveled. They might have had two stories to them, but but they would have been close to each other and they would have shared courtyards and uh, areas of meals, that sort of thing. They they would have uh, they would have seen each other a lot as much as they wanted to, I should say. And and so you got you got this Ammon. He's he's a Amnon. He's a he's a man. He's a prince. And the culture of, of the day would have, would have meant that he would have been probably expected, uh, he would have expected a certain level of respect or honor, probably not necessarily that he deserved it or earned it, more so because of his position. People would have said, oh, you're a prince. 20 years his dad's been, been king, so this, this, uh, the, the importance of who he is and the the influence of his family just keeps getting bigger. So his importance and the people that want to talk to him and the way that they they uh, uh, compliment him, butter him up, uh, bring him things, give him gifts, like that would have just constantly increased because he's probably about 20 years old. So he's probably never known his father not being king in Jerusalem. He has no reference really to the wilderness times. He has no reference to the times at Hebron. He just, I mean, he knows the stories. Yeah, I'm sure he knows several of them, you know, the mighty men. Uh, I'm sure he's been around the military. His brothers uh, are in the military. He's got brothers who are in the priesthood and worship leaders. So he's aware of all of this. He doesn't have a job yet. He hasn't picked a career path. He's not sure where he wants to go. He's just hanging out with the family, and and within that within that women generally were considered. Uh, this sounds horrible. I, it's hard to say. They were generally considered property. They weren't considered uh, of equal value to men, and that is not a principle of. It's a principle of heaven to see to know that men and women are of equal value. 
Jesus taught us that very clearly. And I believe God teaches us that. But the culture of the day was that women weren't considered of equal value, which is one of the reasons. And, and David, David perpetuated that mindset. He had multiple wives, concubines. Uh, I'm guessing there was kind of a, a known rumor that he had, you know, taken Bathsheba uh, to his, you know, to his chambers and raped her. And, and then he married her. Uh, you know, he says he loves her, but it's, it's all like, well, you know, he was king. He could do what he wants. He, he's a man. He could do what he wants. And, and, and that mindset perpetuates, like it flows down from the father to the sons. And, and so the sons had a similar mindset when it came to women and, and wives. And you wanted to, you know, if you wanted one, you took one. Now, he also was royalty. So he had a high expectation of compliance when, with his wishes. And at 19 years old, he would have been considered, uh, you know, definitely a man uh, for the last, I don't know, five years or so. And at 19, he would have been considered uh, somebody who was a, a, a formidable leader. And and especially with this, with the influence in the tribes and in the nation and uh, his connection to, obviously, to David. He would have had a high expectation of compliance. If he wanted something, he would have expected somebody to get it for him or to give it to him or to, uh, you know, to, to make it happen for him. And he was a prince. He was a prince that didn't have a great father figure. Remember, David, David might have been a little bit better of a father than his father was to him. But remember, David grew up with a father who was absent, who had rejected him, who had, he had no discipline from his father. He had, he had no idea of how to discipline his son. He was, he was trained as a servant. He was trained in uh, compliance or, or death. That was, that was the world he grew up in. Although I, I don't know if his father would have killed any of his servants, but, but the general concept was you do what you're told. And you eat when you're, you know, you, you get fed, you get housed, and you do what you're told. And that's what we do. We're servants. That doesn't prepare you to, to be a father. It doesn't prepare you to discipline, to bring wisdom, to bring training, to bring life experiences uh, to your sons. And David was busy. He had multiple layers of, of life going on. He had the tabernacle and worship and music, which he loved to do. He had the warrior mindset, the military strategies and the interactions he needed to have with his generals and his commanders and his captains. And, and, and then he had the diplomacy where he had to interact with and, and develop relationships with multiple nations and kings and tribes and large family gatherings and nomads and, and tradesmen and, he had to keep an eye on, on all of that and the influence that it was having around his his nation. And he had a spiritual obligation that he felt very, very passionately about his identity and his destiny to, to you know, to build a nation that would draw all nations to God, to bring to bring about a mindset that that there is only one God, not multiple gods, that there's that you don't need to sacrifice 
children and and men and women to appease the god but but he's a god who loves to be with his people and he dwells with them daily and and the tabernacle was was there as an example over and over and over again as any emissary or ambassador or family elder would come to the palace for a meeting he would know that they worship their god 24/7 he doesn't go on vacation. He doesn't. He doesn't disappear for a while. He doesn't. He doesn't. Because <laughs> you got to remember, like idols would do that. The rain god showed up during the rainy season, and then he'd go on vacation, and then the sun god would come out, and then if there was too much sun, and there was drought, then clearly we upset the sun god, and then there was the moon god, and sometimes the moon was full, and sometimes it would disappear, and then so that god would disappear, and I mean it was it was just a common thing that gods would come and go and. And David developed, was developing this culture, a nation that believed that God was with them at all times. And that was something that he picked up in his interactions with God and in his interactions with heaven, where he was like, the presence of God is always available. It's always available. And he, so he had all this going on, and he, he wasn't a great father. I'm not saying all of his children were horrible. They weren't. But I think most of that influence came from outside of David. It came out. It came from people like their mothers, you know, Abigail, uh, Bathsheba. Uh, I don't know if Michael, how Michael was with the with the children. Obviously, she didn't have any. She was bitter, generally speaking, and and angry at David uh, for the life that that was and and the love that she missed and and all that. But that doesn't mean she was evil and rude all the time and then i believe you had nathan who who as a, as the prophet of god i i think he also understood that family was was really important i think he made himself available to the to the children of david and and to the mothers of the of those children but david wasn't a great father he really had no idea on how to discipline his his, his children all right so Verse 2, Ammon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin and seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now, Ammon had a friend, or some would say an advisor, but technically I believe he's a cousin. His name was Jonadab. He was the son of Shema, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. And he asked Ammon, why do you think the king's son look, you know, why do you, why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Tell me what's going on. And Ammon said, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Wow. All right. We got, we got some characters here to have fun with. So Jonadab is a cousin. He's a shrewd man. What that means is, He's he's somebody who he he's David's brother's son. Remember now, David's brothers uh, rejected him all of his life uh, up until he was king. Uh, well, I'll, I would say no. I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say that. I think that when they when they experienced him as a leader. When he was in the cave of, of Adullam, and there was 400 men that were following David, and David was training them in warfare and leading them in worship, and show you know uh, mapping out strategically how to provide uh, for the 
for them. And that would involve, you know, raiding and, and, and hunting and, and planting and all that, uh, you know, taking side jobs as, as protectors of various flocks and, and large, uh, large, uh, agricultural, no, livestock. Thank you. Live livestock, um, the, uh, not developers, livestock traders and, and whatever. And I'm sorry. I, I get distracted again by the details. Uh, during that time, several of his brothers, I think, started to kind of come into alignment that David was really an amazing man and worthy of following, and they stuck with him. And even though they dropped off their mom and dad in Moab, uh, basically never to see them again, the brothers stuck with David and followed David, and they became part of the royal family, the royal court. They helped David out in the military. They helped him out as advisors. They they took roles within the nation under David's leadership, which had to be, it was humbling, but it's, you know, it's not humiliating if the if you have a wise leader. And David was wise. He knew his brother's strengths. He knew their influence in the nation in the in the tribe of Judah. He knew their their influence uh in the nation as as a you know the last name. He knew that to reject the rest of his family because of their rejection of him wasn't going to, it's just not a wise move. And it's not a move that God would do because God restores and, and resurrects dead things. He doesn't bring sickness and disease and death. So David, David's brothers are all part of the world. And David's brother had a son, Jonadab, and Jonadab became an advisor to Amnon. My gut is he's probably advisor to most of the princes and probably an influencer in the royal court. And he was somebody who basically just looked out for himself. He was always around the court. He was always, you know, he always, he was probably one of those guys who always seems to get an invitation to a party and nobody really knows who, who brought him. They're not sure, they're not sure how he got in, but somehow he's always around all the influential people. That's, that's who, that's who I pictured Jonadab to be, because he shows up again later in the in the court of David. Like somehow he's he's in the places he needs to be to influence life, but he's not. He probably doesn't actually have an official title anywhere. He's probably one of those guys where where you look at him and think how how does he make a living? Like what does he do? And nobody really knows. What does Jonadab do? I don't know what he does. Well, how did how did he afford that? Where did he get his how? Like where how's he? Where's he? And everybody just kind of shrugs like, I don't know. Maybe he got his money from his father. Maybe he got it. I mean, he is kind of connected to, you know, to King David. Maybe his father gave him money. I don't know. Jonadab was a was an influencer. He would have had an Instagram account with millions of followers because he would have had all these great shots of the royal family. And nobody else would have had access to him. And Jonadab would have let everybody know, look what I can do. And look who I hung out with today. And look, we went on a picnic, blah, blah, blah. Anyways. So he sees Amnon, somebody who he knows he has influence over. Somebody who he probably would have considered a friend. I mean, even some uh, translations use the word friend instead of advisor. But he says, why do you look so haggard? My gosh, you look terrible, dude. What's going on? Tell me what's going on. 
And it was like, I am in love. What? Yeah, I'm in love. With who? With Tamar? My, my brother Absalom's sister. Wow. Really? Tamar? Oh, my word, yes. Well, what what's the problem? Well, I don't know. I don't know if I, I don't know if there's any way for me to get to her. She's old enough to be, you know, to marry. She's incredibly attractive, probably distinctive, but probably one of the most again uh attractive things is her innocence, her purity. I mean, when I when I, I was you know, uh, not just the modeling industry, but, you know, the porn industry is all about trying to make people look young and innocent and inexperienced and and uh, submissive, available. And, and when he looked at Tamar, he saw all those things. He looked at her and he saw, oh, you know, if I could just be with that. He fell in love with Tamar. She was around, right, all the time. He could he could see her probably from his window. He could he could watch her in the courtyard. He could see her with the other sisters and and cousins as they would uh, you know I don't know go out into the streets uh, during the day to do shopping or or go for walks as royal daughters and go through the the fields. With the you know with a few guards and and their brightly colored dresses because that's what uh, virgins would wear, and they were again royal families so they looked clean and they were fresh and they you know the hair was done right and the I'm just uh, everything about it was perfect as far as he was concerned and I'm sure she looked distinctive. Absalom is often described as one of the best looking people ever in the world uh he just he had the perfect long straight dark hair which was distinctive from the generally wavy or curly hair that that uh the middle eastern jewish community generally had but he had he had long straight hair and i'm guessing so did she so she was distinctive maybe her skin was a little less or a little more pigmented than others he just looked at her and he fell in love, which was really, when you fall in love, sometimes it, you don't really necessarily have a choice on that end. You have to choose what to do afterwards. But but Amnon just, he just fell in love and he made himself sick thinking about her. He was so in love. And I, I do, I mean, I, I, I remember, I do remember back in the day, I was a young man. And you'd see certain, I, I, I would, not you, uh, I'd see certain girls and I would think, oh, like we, we call it uh, infatuation, right? Or or crush. And you do, your your stomach feels almost nauseous. You're not sure what to do. And, and trust me, guys do stupid, crazy things to try and try and express that emotion, whatever that is. It's, it's, they, they are, they are goofy uh, they are crazy. They do silly things. They do dangerous things. They do feats of strength. <laughs> pick things up and throw things around, or pick up each other and throw each other around. Anything to 
to try and express this this crazy nauseous feeling that you feel when you're around that girl that makes you feel this way. It's 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 crazy and you look back and it's actually kind of funny and fun. And at some level honestly I still feel it when I'm around my wife. She's you know, she's been the love of my life for years and I still get goofy around her and she knows it and she, you know, will be like stop. <laughs> and I'll think, "But I'm so in love with you." Okay, I know. It's thank you. <laughs> it's funny. We're She's funny. She's awesome. So, anyways, Amnon feels this toward Tamar, although he doesn't even, he really hasn't even spoken to her much. And I know what that's like, too. I remember when I first saw my wife. And, uh, man, I mean, she wasn't my wife. I first saw this girl, and she was walking. I remember her walk. I, I still love to watch my wife walk. I still do to this day. And she rolls her eyes because I'll just show I, I don't care if she catches me. I just I'll just watch her walk and she'd be like, stop it. And I'd be like, but I love your walk. I just do. And I remember the first day I saw her walk and I thought, oh, my word. If I ever had a chance at a girl that looked that amazing. If I ever. But I really didn't think I would. I really didn't. And, but I kept an eye on her, and I continued to flirt and and use. I mean, for me, I didn't really have like feats of strength or or that sort of thing. I used uh, my my enthusiastic expression and my ability to uh, to I would consider to be funny in my ability to cut other people down, which is not a good quality to have. But I had developed it quite nicely. Um, and my ability to compliment, uh, girls, charming. I was charming, charming and funny. And I also, uh, in that charm, I had really developed a, uh, attention to detail because I found that that was very, um, it, it set me apart from most other guys. I mean, specific detail, like, uh, I would, I would notice, uh, eyelashes and I could I could tell like uh, back in the 80s when I was when this was happening early 80s I could tell uh, we we had like tinted not we but the girls would use tinted eyelash uh, eyelash whatever and I would I would notice like the blue or the purple or the the yeah and I would I would mention it uh, eyeliner uh, eye shadows uh, lip gloss. Uh, uh, I I actually I actually learned the the scent of several general perfumes that most girls at least had some had one of these right and when they would wear it I would I could identify it and I would mention it to them and when you notice those details at least from my perspective it it set me apart from the guys who were really good looking the guys that were really strong the guys that were uh, able to do other things I. I just went with my strength, and I used it uh, whenever I had a crush. But, man, this girl, I kept an eye on this girl, and I'd watch her walk. I really would, and I know it's creepy. It's creepy when I talk about it in my head, but it's true. I'd, I, I, could, I could stand in my dorm. I was on the second floor. I could stand in my dorm, and I could watch her walk 
you know, to class and I would watch her walk and then I would, you know, and then I'd run to class because that usually meant I was going to be a little late if I watched her walk, but I would, and I would find, I, I, I knew her schedule. Anyways, I just was in love with her and I, 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 I didn't, I, I, I didn't know how to talk to her. She was the only girl on campus I didn't know how to talk to. And and I think part of it was I found her so attractive, and and the other part was I had no idea. I didn't, I I knew most of what I would normally say to a girl was to try and get them to like me, but that involved at some level a lack of integrity on my part. I would become what I thought they wanted me to be in order to f- find me attractive, and then for me the game was over. And I would then just go back to, you know, being myself or, uh, you know, if what uh, it was, I know I'm such a jerk. I know I am. I know you can email me and let me know again, but I was, I'd play the game. I'd get them to like me. Uh, I, you know, whatever, confirm it with all my friends. And then after a couple of weeks, it was like, yeah, I'm done. It's, you know, the game's over. I, I'm going to go. You know, I've I've found someone else I'm attracted to. I'm going to go over there. So I'm literally doing this, but I'm still watching this girl because I keep thinking if I ever had a chance, if I ever had a chance. Oh, enough about me. On with the story. Um, I'll tell you more about, I will, if you want to know more of that story and how we ended up together, which I think is a wonderful story. I love telling it. I love telling it, but it could take a while, and I don't want to take a while in the podcast because that little narrative is not the epic narrative that we are currently in. So he's got this feeling. He doesn't know how he's ever going to talk to this girl. He, he it, it seems impossible for him to do anything uh, to her. He he just he just has no idea how to get how to how to even talk to her. And Jonadab, the influencer, says, "Listen, I got this. Let me give you a plan. Go to bed." Pretend to be ill. Your dad will come and see you. Which to me speaks to what type of of interaction David had with his kids. If they were sick or injured, he went to see them. He wasn't a regular in the family compound. He didn't come by and see his kids. It wasn't like, hey, your dad will be by. You know, he comes by every night or he comes by every afternoon or, you know, whatever. Uh, he's here every morning, you know, talk to him. It's like, Pretend to be sick. Your dad will come to see you. And then say to him, I'd like my sister. And I know technically they're not brother and sister, but anyways. I'd like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food right here so I can watch her and then eat it from her hand. So his basic plan is pretend to be sick. Your dad will come see you. And then He's going to say something like, what can I do for you? Because, again, it speaks to the type of father David is. I just give them what they want. I try to make them happy. I try to be a good father. He doesn't He doesn't know how to be a good father, so he just gives them what they want. And, and Jonadab knows this, and he's like, just ask your dad for something. Just say, hey, can, can you send uh, Tamar over to make me something to eat? I think if I had some some of the bread that she makes, some of the cakes that she's that that she's famous for around the family compound. I don't know if that's true or not. If she was famous for for making these things, but but 
Ammon goes with that. And then and then just say, you know, I'd like her to make them like right here, like not to bring them over. I want to, I want to, I want them fresh. I want them warm out of the oven. I don't want her to make her make them at the kitchen and then bring them all the way over in a basket. I want to see her. And I want to taste them right here. And Ammon goes with the plan. Now this is this is where the choices start. Now, Ammon is going to approach this whole thing like he's a victim of love. He fell in love. He didn't have a choice in it. And all the rest of the plan that he in it, that he steps into is under the guides of, I can't help it. I fell in love. This is where this is where so many people go wrong because they use this victim mentality to cheat on their girlfriend, cheat on their boyfriend, cheat on their wife, cheat on their husband. And it may not be physical cheating, it may be emotional cheating, it could be, you know, it could be uh, you know, texting or sexting or whatever. Like there's just all kinds of ways and they say, "Well, I can't help it. I couldn't help it. We fell in love. I couldn't help it. We fell in love. I couldn't help it. We fell in love. Fine. You fell in love. Then you have choices to make." And the first one that he made was to listen to Jonah Dab's advice. He could have said, you know what? That's not, I, Joab, come on. Come on, bruh. What are you talking about? Jonah Dab is not a good influence. Jonah Dab is, is somebody who's not bringing kingdom principles into making decisions. He's not a wise advisor he's an advisor that says i'll help you become selfish i'll help you continue to be a victim of your circumstances i'll influence and and help you basically be the selfish arrogant punk that you currently are i'll just help that become more so that you'll appreciate me and I'll get more of influence. Like Jonah Dab's out for himself, and he teaches Ammon or advises Ammon to do the same thing. Ammon first makes the choice to listen to Jonah Dab's advice. Then he makes the choice to make himself ill. He didn't have to do this. Ammon laid down and pretended to be sick. And sure enough, David came to see him. And Ammon said, I would like my sister to come and make me some of that special bread, some of that special bread in my sight so I can eat it from her hand so it's nice and warm and fresh. They're, honestly, that's something amazing to eat fresh bread. We, If you've never had it, then I'm sorry, but you do know when you have it, it is pretty, pretty awesome. So he makes himself depressed and despondent and sick. All of these are choices. He listens to his friend, his cousin. He lies to his father. All right. He comes to see him. He could have just said, yeah, I'm sick. Uh, I don't feel well. Like, what, what do you think I should do? Or thanks for coming to see me, dad. Like he could have, he could have pulled out of the plan right there. And instead he goes forward with the plan, which is usually the case when it comes to, when it comes to uh, cheating. When it comes to these kind of what we call big, big bad decisions, it's usually you've made you've made hundreds of them by the time you've actually do the deed. 
So he says, all right, uh, fine. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I'll send, uh, I'll send Tamar over and he sends word to Tamar at the palace. So he doesn't even go to see her. He just sends word, go to your brother, Amnon, Amnon, prepare some food for him. So Tamar goes, she's, she's completely innocent in this. She has no concept of what's going to happen to her. So she comes, dun dun dun, and the and the furnace turned on. You probably heard that. Uh, I don't know. Actually, my producer might have just. It, it's so amazing what they what he can do with those filters, anyways, and compressions and and EQing or whatever. Uh, oh, impressive these guys. Anyways, so she goes and she prepares prepares food for him, which again takes time, right? And he watches her. He watches her the whole time. He's trying to probably trying to make small talk he, he he she comes in she has the the ingredients he's lying down uh she takes some dough she needs it she makes the bread in his side banging on it kneading it mushing it he watches all of this she takes the pan she puts it in the in the in the fire she brings the pan in she serves him bread and he what pretends to be too sick to eat i can't eat i can't eat send everyone out of here so everyone leaves him it's just him alone with tamar and he's like all right listen tamar i i'm i i can't get out of bed i need you to bring it into my bedroom and I need you to feed me. I'm so ill. I need you to feed me with your hands. Again, all of these are choices. Please don't forget this. He's making choices over and over and over again. He's making these choices in order to get what he wants, in order to obtain what he thinks he deserves, in order to uh, perpetuate the mindset that he's a victim of love. None of this is his fault. He can't help himself. She's so beautiful. She's so distinct. She's so attractive. Her purity, her passion, her her skin, her hair, her her lips, her teeth, like everything about her is just captivating. I can't help myself. So she brings it in. She's innocent, right? Tamar took the bread that she had prepared. She brought it to her brother in his bedroom. And when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her, right? Probably right at the wrist. She's reaching out. She's got the piece of bread. She's probably got a smile on her face. He's lying there. He's looking straight at her. She reaches out. He grabs her wrist. And he's she's he's like, you know, come to bed with me. Sleep with me. Let's have sex. Everything about this speaks to that same mentality that that the porn industry constantly tries to preach, which is everybody wants to have sex with you. Every girl wants to have sex with you. And and all you need to do is show her how much you want to have sex with her and and they'll give in. Now, I'm sure I don't I don't know this, but I'm guessing there's all kinds of twists and and perversions on that concept but generally that's that's what they're peddling they're peddling well i know and then they're also peddling i i uh, just because i'm aware 
uh, and keep myself aware of it. I know that they, the underage sex and the pedophilia and and the sex trade and the human trafficking is a horrible blight in our nation and in our world and needs to be stopped. But that mentality is still here. It's here in Amnon. Amnon. He's saying, if I, if I can get her in my bedroom and I grab her and I tell her I want to have sex with her, I know she'll give in. She will see how much I love her because I want to sleep with her. She will, she will comply because I'm a prince, because I am, I am influential, I am, I am wealthy, I am a man, and she's a woman. Like there's so much arrogance and selfishness and, and rudeness and unkindness and any, everything that isn't kingdom is going on here, and all of it is Amnon's choice. He's playing the victim. He thinks he's a victim of love, and he believes it because of who he is when he grabs her and says, sleep with me, she's going to give in. And she doesn't. She, she refuses. She, says, she goes, no, no, don't rape me. This should not be done in Israel. Don't do a wicked thing. Now, her response, again, remember, when Bathsheba's raped, we don't hear any of this because, because evidently it, it, she, just, she just was taken. Tamar tries to fight back. Tamar is, is, is trying to reason with her brother, and it, it probably didn't happen as quickly as you can read it. There's a struggle going on. I, I wonder if at some level her little spidey senses went off like, okay, I'm coming into, into this man's bedroom. He says he's sick. He wants me to feed him. Okay. But like this, like this is really unusual. And he sends everybody out of the house, not just out of the room. He's like, I need to be alone just with Tamar. I, I think internally she's, she's like, this is this I gotta I gotta be careful. So when he grabs her and he says, sleep with me, she's like, no, no, don't rape me. Do not do this. This is bad. This is very this is wicked. This is wicked. This should not be done in Israel. What what she's saying is not just in the nation, but because of who you are. You're a prince. Like what you're what you're bringing in. What you're trying to do right now, what you're bringing into the nation is not something we should have as a nation. We're royalty. We behave better than this. We are children of God. We behave better than this. We make better choices than this. She recognizes that this is a choice that Ammon is making and he can make a different choice. This is, this is fascinating. Tamar is an amazing young lady. And then she pleads with him more because I have a feeling he's probably wrestling with her and maybe you know, maybe he's got her on her back at this point and, and she's, you know, on the floor or on a couch or in the bed. And she's like, what about me? Think about me. Where could I go to get rid of this? If I'm raped, you take my purity from me. You take my virginity from me. What what, what happens to me? And what about you? You're going to be considered an idiot for taking me. Just Just ask dad. Ask the king. I'll marry you. Fine. You you say you love me because I'm sure he's he's spouting that off the whole time. I love you. Let me rape you. This will be great. 
because because men are idiots when they're like this. Sin always makes sense when you're in it. It doesn't make sense when you when you listen to it. But he's thinking, I love you. Let me rape you. Then you'll you'll feel my love. You'll feel how much I I'm in love with you when I'm inside of you. This will be amazing. Oh my word. Guys are so, so twisted. They just don't get intimacy sometimes. And Amnon had no idea what he was doing. Other than he was making a lot of bad choices. And she's calling him out on it. She's reminding him, these are your choices. It's your choice to to rape me. It's me. And what are you going to do? She's trying to make him think long term. What are you going to do with me? You rape me, then what? And fine, you don't care about me. What are you going to do about you? Your reputation. You're going to be seen like a like an idiot in Israel. People are going to be people are going to be thinking Amnon can't control himself. Amnon doesn't have Amnon doesn't have royal, you know, uh, the royal mindset. Amnon doesn't follow the Lord. Like there's all all kinds of reputation that you are sacrificing on for what? Uh, I can marry you. Just ask the king. We can make arrangements. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if she really wanted to marry him, but at that point she understood like if he rapes me so much and and my life and his life are is going to change. She's the only one that that's making logical sense. She's the only one that's making the right choices. Amnon continues to make bad choices. He ends up raping her. And then it says Amnon hated her with such an intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more then he had been in love with her, and he said to her, get out. And she said, no. Again, she's trying to do the right thing. Sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you've already done to me. And it says he refused to listen to her. So this, again, the nuance is she she tried to reason with him. She's like, okay, fine, you raped me. Now, this is crazy to me that she had this kind of uh, fortitude, this internal amazing personality that would that would be strong enough after she's raped she goes okay the only way this gets worse is if you kick me out if you rape me and you leave me in your house then you can we can still get married we can still make this right and even though it's out of order at least at least there'll be some positive that could come out of this and he looks at her and he's like, basically, well, that wasn't as much fun as I thought it'd be. I really thought after after I was, you know, having sex with you, like we would be so sexually compatible that the intensity of my pleasure and the the, the pleasure that you feel when I'm when I was, you know, raping you would be so amazing that that we would be in love with each other forever, that this would be a never ending love story. And you know what? I don't I'm not feeling it. I, I, you know what? You're, it's your fault. This is your fault because you didn't let me sleep with you. You made me wrestle with you. You made me tear your clothing. You made me rape you. You, even after I was done having sex with you, you should have been enjoying life. And instead, you're, you're, you're just lying there. You're not even thankful for being with me. As I'm, I, I'm an incredible man. And look, you're just, you're just weeping. You're, you're acting all emotional. 
this is this is your I don't I don't like you at all. I really thought you would be much better than this. And I'm sure he pushes this all on her. Why? Because he's an arrogant prick. That's why. He's just a horrible man. And she's lying there going, don't send me out of, do not kick me out of your house. And he's, he's probably arguing back. See, this is what I'm talking about. You should be happy that I raped you. And you're not. You're not even happy about it. You, you don't even look like you enjoyed yourself. And they have this back and forth. And it's eventually, he calls in his personal servants. And he says, drag this woman out of my sight and bolt the door. Lock the door after her. Now, they know what, she, they know what he did. They know that they raped her, that he raped her. They saw the whole thing. They under, They heard. They probably heard the plan. They heard the conversation. He followed through on the conversation. And when it was all done, and she's trying to convince him, don't kick me out, don't kick me out. Nope. He pushes her. He pushes her away, and he doesn't even have. This is. This man is such a creep. I just. I don't have. He's such a. He's like he's like a worm. He's 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 worse than the worm. He's the slime on the bottom of the worm. No, he's this man. And any man that does this is a horrible being internally. They are so far from their identity that God has put in them that they think that this is who they are. They think that this is you know that that their destiny right is to rape this woman and and give her pleasure and then she doesn't have pleasure. So this is clearly her fault because. I'm amazing. He doesn't even have the guts to kick her out of the house. He calls in his servants, further embarrassing her and humiliating her. And he says, pick her up and throw her out and lock the door behind her. I don't ever want to see her again. Look at what she did to me. She made me fall in love with her. She made me want to sleep with her. And then she refused, and I had to force myself on her. And now she doesn't even have pleasure in it. So fine. She's trying to, she wants to marry me? I wouldn't marry some wretch like you, you horrible whore. Get out of here. Honestly, this is, this is a horrible conversation. So his servants put her out and bolted the door. She's, she was wearing the robe that... All of the young daughters, uh, virgin daughters of the king wore, like I said, they're brightly colored and and it flowed in the wind and, and they would dance and walk and wherever they were, like these robes were just such an amazing uh, illustration of, of the joy and purity of, of their lives. And Tamar puts ashes on her head and she tears the robe and she puts her hand over her head and she, she goes away weeping aloud. So I'm guessing in the, in the area, like she was, she was kicked out in outdoor. There was the, there was the fire pit. Probably the ashes were still there from the bread that she had cooked because they didn't build like bonfires. They would build little cook fires. She puts those ashes on her, on her head. She tears her robe. Everybody knows that, knows something horrible has happened to her. And she covers her face with her hands and she runs away weeping, just weeping so aloud. She did everything right, and he did everything wrong, and yet she's the one who's left like this. And she goes to her brother Absalom. And he said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? 
In other words, he says, wait a minute, did Amnon do this? Did he rape you? And she says, yes. And he's like, all right, be quiet for now. For he's your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. Amnon, Amnon, uh, uh, sorry, Absalom, here's the story. It's not that quick of a conversation. He's like, wait a minute, what, what happened to you? What happened? What happened to you? She goes running to him. He probably hugs her, and he's like, what happened? What happened? My gosh, you're like, what happened? You ripped your robe. You're covered in ashes. What happened? And she's just weeping, and, and he senses. He's like, oh, wait a minute. Did Amnon rape you? He did. She's like, yes, yes, I told him not to. I struggled that he was more powerful than me. I told him to stop. I told him I would marry him. She tells him the whole story. And he's like, all right, this is what I want you to do. I want you to calm down. You can stay here at my house. I'll take care of you. And and Absalom, he goes, you know, his, his, the phrase there, he's your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. He's implying, I, I, I will take this. I will defend you. But it's going to be a while. And Absalom went for the long plan on this. He's like, I will put something together. And when David heard all of this, he was furious. But he did nothing. That was a dramatic pause. <laughs> so angry. And I don't know why he didn't do anything. Some would say, well, because he raped Bathsheba and this was his fault, maybe. I mean, I, I'm guessing it's multiple reasons, so that's probably one. And one is he knows he's a he's bad father. You know, he didn't he doesn't discipline his children, he doesn't know what to do, so he doesn't know how to discipline Amnon. Because if he disciplines Amnon, then he's got uh, probably a list of other people that he needs to discipline. So what does he do? And he thinks about you know the the what he opened up the family to when he when he raped uh, Bathsheba, and he thinks, well, this is this is part of probably what God was trying to warn me about, and I wasn't paying attention to this kind of thing. I was paying attention to something else, and so this happened. So maybe this is my fault. But he doesn't do anything, and it says Absalom never said a word to Amnon, good or bad. He just hated him. He hated him because of what he did to his sister. Now that's somebody who has deep, <laughs> deep offense issues. He doesn't say a word. Can you imagine the first time Amnon and Absalom ended up in the same courtyard or the same dinner table? And Absalom just smiles at him and they have a nice conversation and Amnon walks home going, well, he... I guess everything's cool. Absalom must be cool with it. I mean, Tamar's living with him. I'm guessing she knows what, you know, he knows what I did to her. He doesn't care. So I don't care. So everything's good. Oh, but it's not good. It's not good in the house of David and it's not good in Absalom's heart. And things are going to get way worse. But we'll hit that next time on the Epic Narrative. 
Hey everyone, thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use. You can also reach out to Bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com. See you next week, guys.